That was beautiful. Thank you, choirs. Our high school and eighth grade students took a trip this weekend over across the state to the Peace River to canoe down and woke up early, early this morning to be here and join us in singing this morning. So you all get extra, extra credit. Thank you. And that Peace River trip that they went on was one of my favorite. In my years of youth ministry, I loved the opportunity to spend some time quietly paddling down the river, some of the time quietly paddling down the river, time around the campfire, enjoying each other's company. And one of those years, one night as we sat around in small groups after a day out on the river, we were discussing this story from 2 Samuel, the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was one of the members of Saul's court, the first king of Israel. And after Saul's death and David rose to power, David extended an invitation to Mephibosheth to come and dine at his table. Now what would have been more customary in those days was for the new king to at best exile members of the old king's court and at worst execute them. So an invitation to the table was unique. And so we shared with the students that each of us is given an invitation to dine with the king even when we don't deserve it. And we asked them to consider what had they done with their invitation Where were they with respect to the king's table? Were they sitting at their seat? Perhaps they had had entered the room or they were looking in from the outside. It's it's an opportunity for students to, to take that illustration and consider where they were in their walk of faith. And one of our high school seniors said something beautiful that has continued to roll around in my mind. He said, I feel like I'm still holding on to the invitation. Like it's been torn up, but taped back together for me. What have you done with your invitation? Are you still holding on to it? Our scripture for this morning comes from the Revised Common Lectionary. It's the Epistle Selection from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. And in our text for this morning, Paul lies out what lies ahead for those who have been invited. And, And in summary, it's an invitation to us to quit being rule followers and to participate in Christ's suffering. I invite you to open up your Bibles that you'll find in front of you or those Bibles that you've brought with you from home to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul writes, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, 
I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here in his letter to the Philippians, Paul is addressing a theological controversy that is happening within the church. And I think it's difficult for us to appreciate it fully. It's, it's challenging for us to identify with, with what Paul's audience is struggling with. My aunt sent me an email this past week. And the email was, it was, a, was about an event that contributed to the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland in 1522. The event was called, and I'm not making this up, the Affair of the Sausages. Holdrich Zwingli, a pastor in Zurich, was invited to the home of Christoph Froschauer for a dinner during the season of Lent that included sausage. Thank you. Now, because the eating of meat during Lent was prohibited, the event led to Froschauer being arrested. Can you imagine? In response, Zwingli, the pastor, preached a sermon entitled Regarding the Choice and Freedom of Foods, effectively launching the Reformation movement in Zurich, Switzerland, arrested for eating sausage. It can be challenging for us to understand and identify with these sorts of theological controversies of the past. And so perhaps it's, it's helpful to consider more recent theological rifts within the church. To consider the emotion attached to them. What is it that the church fights about today? Consider those theological issues for a moment, some of the emotion involved. 
and we begin to get a sense of what Paul's audience is experiencing. And so specifically here in Philippians, Paul is countering a movement in the early church where where there were some Christian teachers teaching that in order to become a follower of Christ, you needed to first be circumcised and then learn the Torah, follow all of the Jewish law, and that righteousness from God came not through faith in Christ, but rather by following these laws carefully and precisely. And I think this teaching is attractive. It's, it's easy to follow, I mean. Here are a set of rules. Follow them, and you're good with God. It feels a lot more like other religions. In fact, it was a commonly held belief that, that right living, rule following, led directly to favor by God. In fact, we, we are not so foreign to that notion. When we see someone who we perceive to be a good person suffering, we think, how can that be? How is that fair? How can God do that to so-and-so? And so as a way of arguing his point, Paul lays out his own credentials. Paul, Paul doesn't begin this uh, passage by, by bragging, but rather by laying out his resume as if to say, if what they were teaching was true, then I would certainly gain by teaching it myself. In verses 5 and 6, he says, If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning that he didn't come to his Jewish faith later in life, but rather he has been a Jew from birth. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrews, that is, of Hebrew parents. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was Saul's tribe and was the only tribe to remain faithful to the tribe of Judah when the northern kingdom split away. As to the law, he was a Pharisee, meaning he followed the rules strictly and carefully. A persecutor of the church and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, Paul says, what I am telling you with respect to the law and the centrality of faith in Christ to receiving righteousness from God is not because I am in some way lacking with respect to the law. I'm not sure why it is that we are so drawn to rule following. Because we as people are notoriously poor rule followers. In his book, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson writes that it's empirically demonstrable that people are poor rule followers, even when it is in their best interest. Quoting a 2014 study in Canada, it says that one-third of people will fail to fill the prescriptions that they receive from their doctor. Any of those in this room? And half of those that actually fill the prescription won't take the medication correctly. They'll miss doses, they'll quit taking it early, and they might not even take it at all. He concludes, People are better at filling and properly administering prescription medication to their pets than to themselves. 
And that's not good. Even from your pet's perspective, it's not good. Your pet probably loves you and would be happier if you took your medication. <laughs> well, the reality is that our faith is, is not simply a list of rules to follow or a prescription to follow. And that's good news. And then Paul goes on to say something that is admittedly troubling and confusing. In verse 10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death? Who's ever invited their friend to church with that line? So what is Paul saying? I'd like us to just sit with that. For a moment to share in Christ's suffering. Suffering is a problem for many of us. In a blog post some years ago, Pete Enns, who's a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University, asked his readers, what are the issues for you that make it hard for you to stay a Christian? Suffering in the world was one of the top five general issues that people identified as, as making it hard for them to be a Christian. We struggle with suffering. We do a lot of hand-wringing and fist-shaking when it comes to suffering. God, why don't you come down and fix this? In Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, the title character wrestles with the pain and suffering he sees in the community. He wonders why God would allow it and, and why God won't just come down and fix this world. He writes, I wanted to tell God that, that it was time for his coming. And if there was anything at all to what he had promised, why didn't he come in glory with angels and lay his hands on the hurt children and awaken the dead soldiers and restore the burned villages and the blasted and poisoned land? Suffering is not something that we profess to desire, and when faced with suffering, we generally ask God why. Suffering is complicated. There is suffering we inflict on ourselves. There is suffering inflicted by others, by disease, by circumstances beyond our control. And we often find ourselves asking similar questions. God, why don't you come down here and fix this? In Barry's book, the, character, the character's mind wanders to the story of Jesus on the cross 
and to those who made similar demands. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you come down from that cross? Barry writes, I knew the answer. I knew it a long time before I could admit it. For all the suffering of the world is in it. God didn't, he hasn't. Because from the moment that God came down, he would be the absolute tyrant of the world and we would be his slaves. Even those who hated him and hated one another and hated their own souls would have to believe in him then. And from that moment, the possibility that we might be bound to him and he to us and us to one another by love forever would be ended. If God were to come down from that moment, the possibility that we might be bound to him and he to us and us to one another by love forever would be ended because there would no longer be choice. And in order for love to exist, we must be able to choose not to love. And so love is the answer. But it still stings, doesn't it? We are called not to be rule followers, but to suffer with Christ. And then here Paul goes on to to describe what that is going to look like, this Christian life, using words associated with, with physical struggle, as though the Christian life would be toil, some, some race to be run. Forget what is behind, but strain towards what is ahead. Press on towards the goal. And I don't know about you, but there are days when, when I feel like a pretty good runner in the race. But there are also a lot of days when I don't want to run at all. At Happy Land's open house this year, one of the teachers was sharing the schedule for the week with the parents that had gathered there. And the teacher was sharing the, the expectations for the year, what it would look like to sign in and out your kid, and what pickup and drop-off looked like, what responsibilities were there for the parents, and what students were allowed to bring for lunch, and what students weren't allowed to bring for lunch, and that on Thursdays, Thursdays were pizza days, and so on Thursdays you didn't need to bring a lunch because lunch would be provided on Fridays. Fridays are fresh fruit Fridays. And so we're going to ask that some parents sign up in order to help the class out and bring fruit. And one dad in the back raised his hand and said, sometimes it's all I can do just to get my kid here. I've actually got a reminder in my phone that says, pick kid up. (laughs) 
There are a lot of days like that. And so here's the good news. It's that we're not called to win the race. It's simply to run. To strain towards the goal. There are days when just showing up is the measure of what we have to offer. Do not be ashamed of simply showing up. Showing up is an act of faith, an act of devotion, an act of commitment. I performed a wedding a few weeks ago and the father of the bride during his toast after the marriage ceremony said about the groom, through ups and downs over eight years of dating my daughter from moving away to arguments and long distance relationships and more, he kept showing up. Showing up is an act of love. Showing up is it's sitting next to the loved one in the hospital bed when there's nothing else left to do. Showing up is reaching over and holding the hand of a spouse after a long day of disagreements and fighting when there's nothing left to say. Showing up is getting out of bed and taking a shower and going outside when the loneliness and depression have become overwhelming. Showing up is coming in here to worship when we wonder if God is ever going to do something about the suffering of this world. Showing up is an act of faith, an act of devotion, and an act of love. And when it comes to running the race, showing up when we have nothing else to offer is the ultimate act of reliance on God. God, I'm no good to run, but it doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's about what you have done and are doing. And God gives us the choice to freely come to, to show up again and again with our invitations torn up and taped back together. Again and again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.